I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Chris Wallace is here, the anchor of Fox News Sunday. Welcome, my friend. Well, it's good to be with you, Bill. I've always wanted to say Mr. Wallace is here to see you. (laughs) And now I have. Your new book is called Countdown 1945. And Chris, this is a doozy. What was it about this story that made you say this is worth telling 75 years later? Telling again, Chris. I, I, I wanted to find a great moment in history, a really big moment in history. And I, I, probably somebody else has come up with a genre, but to write a historical thriller, because I think so much of, of the history books we see is written from the vantage point. We know what happened and we'll analyze what happened, but it's in the past. I wanted to do something different. Countdown 1945, the 116 days that changed the world. And so we take you starting on April 12, 1945, when Truman becomes president, ending on August 6, 45, when they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, and take you to key moments in those 116 days. Because, you know, history is one thing looked at with 2020 hindsight. It's a very different thing when you think the enormous decisions that people had to make at that time, Truman and his war cabinet, do we invade Japan or do we use the atom bomb, the, the scientists at Los Alamos who don't know whether the darn thing is going to even work until 21 days before uh, th- they actually use it when they have the first and only test of it in the Alamogordo Desert. And the flight crew of the Enola Gay who take off for Hiroshima and don't know if they drop the bomb because there's never been an atom bomb dropped from an airplane, whether the shockwaves will tear the plane apart. So I was trying to sort of take you along and put you in the seat where these people were at that time as kind of a living history and uh, or a a historical thriller. Mm -hmm. And kind of think we did it. Yeah. Mission accomplished, I would say. Kudos to you. Uh, I think the book title could have been 116 Days. (laughs) And that would have been a good one, too, for a good title. Well, uh, it could have worked. Thank you. I, well, the way, except here, except this. If I'm going to do another book, then countdown. The countdown ah, is not see. a bad way to go. Yeah, so I, I think we call that a tease. Um, you, you did a very good job of laying the foundation for this conversation. I want to take our conversation from four locations, Chris, over that period of four or five months that you describe: Washington D.C., the desert sands of New Mexico, the island of Tinian in the Pacific. And, of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But start with Truman being sworn in toward the dying days of the war. His status as vice president notwithstanding, he did not have the closest relationship with FDR. How did he embrace this job? Well, he, first of all, he didn't want it. He, he was set to nominate somebody else at the convention in July of 1944, Jimmy Burns. Uh, he was going to give the nomination speech for him to be uh, Trump, uh, Roosevelt's running mate. And the the party leaders, Trump, Roosevelt didn't care because he thought he was going to live forever and he was going to serve out the war. He really didn't care who his running mate was. Uh, but the party leaders in Chicago uh, wanted to put somebody new on the ticket because they were quite concerned about Roosevelt's health and whether he'd be able to serve out a term. And they <laughs> came to a fairly simple conclusion. They said, who would hurt the ticket the least 
not who's going to be the best person, who's going to be the person who would step in as president. Who'll hurt the ticket the least? And they decided Harry S. Truman, a, a fairly sort of backbench senator from Missouri, was the who filled the ticket. So they kind of forced him to take the job. And once he became vice president, and you got to remember, Roosevelt, this was his 13th year as president, his fourth term. He'd gotten pretty good at ignoring his vice presidents. So he, they had Truman and Roosevelt, two private meetings in the 82 days that, that Truman was vice president. He, he was sidelined and wow. wasn't especially happy. But the result of it is when he's sworn in on uh, April 12, 1945, Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, takes him aside afterwards into a private room and he says, Mr. President, now I've got to tell you about an immense top secret project to build the most powerful weapon in human history. And at that moment, Harry Truman, the new president, knew absolutely nothing about the Manhattan Project to develop the atom bomb. Wow. (laughs) So that is stage one. Meanwhile, the U.S. military, as you referred to, is testing this bomb in the New Mexico desert, right? And they they have their doubters. Why were so many unconvinced that this was even possible? Because it had never been done. There had been a controlled uh, experiment in a laboratory to try to to unleash an an atomic chain reaction. But on a real scale, uh, and to create a a giant explosive to have the full force of an atomic chain reaction, it had never happened. And even you talk about Alamogordo on July 16th in the the vast wasteland of the New Mexico desert. They have a 100-foot tower. And the the bomb is sitting on the tower and they're all in uh, bunkers, cement bunkers, and and literally with their faces down, uh, lying down on the ground because they were worried about the flash. And there were scientists further away who were betting, like a betting pool, on some saying it's a dud when they hit the button, nothing's going to happen. And some saying it's going to ignite the atmosphere. And they question, is it going to just destroy New Mexico or will it take out the entire Western United States. Wow. So there's several hundred miles south of Albuquerque, right? It's, it's around mid-July. Mm-hmm. How does Truman then react when they bring him the idea and they say it worked? Well, he was in Potsdam, Germany, a, a suburb of Berlin, because he was just about to conduct his first, he was replacing Roosevelt, first new Big Three summit with Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Britain, and Premier Joseph Stalin of Russia, the two allies, uh, primarily to talk about the post-war. The Nazis had just surrendered in May. This is July 16th. So he's there eight hours ahead of New Mexico. And late that night, he gets the first word and he, up to that point, he kind of thought of it as a science project. He didn't take it all that seriously because until was it was he was he the one who called work. it was he the one who called it that a science project? I don't think he used that phrase, but that's certainly the way he thought of it. And he kind of was dismissive of it, but 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 very concerned about what was going to happen because he knew. And when he got the word that night, late that night, I think it was about eight p.m. in uh, Potsdam, Germany, he knew that this had completely changed the balance of power but among the allies and that instead of being the junior, very much the junior partner with Churchill and Stalin, he now was in, uh, in the lead seat. He had the, the whip hand and uh, that he would be able to determine 
what was going to happen. And he also knew that he might have a way short of invading Japan, which was going to be terribly bloody and probably extend the war for another year and a half, that he would have a way, perhaps, if it all worked, to end the war and, and, and get the Japanese to surrender. I would also imagine in that calculus that I'll get to in a moment here is, am I going to use it or not? But stand by on that. So, so here's the stage, spring 1945, Germany surrenders, Hitler commits suicide in Berlin, Russia's moving in on the east, and really the European theater is being decided. Uh, and into the summertime, it is decided. So the action, quite literally, Chris, is moving toward the Pacific Theater in full. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, there's, well, there's one more left, and it's in, in uh, against Japan in the Pacific. Yeah, which takes us to an island in the Pacific called Tinian. It's tiny. And in your book, some of the American pilots from the air believe it looks like the island of Manhattan, New York City. What was happening there? Well, uh, the, the reason the Tinian was so important, it was a perfect launch pad for bombers to make the 1,500-mile trip, roughly, to Japan. And, and first, and primarily at that point, for conventional weapons to firebomb Japan, 100,000 people dying in one night from the firebombing of Tokyo. Uh, and also, it was going to be the launch pad for the 509th Composite Group, which was this top-secret crew of, of, of hundreds of pilots and bombardiers and navigators and support crews completely separate from everybody else. And every, and all the other pilots were picked off at them, like, who are these guys? Uh, and, but they were ready for this secret mission, which only a few of them knew what it was, which was if the atom bomb worked and if President Truman gave the order to go ahead and drop it on Japan. Mm. You know, we uh, you know, the Johns Hopkins map that we've been using for COVID uh, going back to March or even February. So we were messing around in the studio the other day and we found Tinian on the map. And I think they had two or three cases apparently reported there. But what (laughs) what your book talks, I think, 1300 square miles, I think, of memory serves based on reading your book. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a tiny, but it must be beautiful, too, in the middle of the Pacific, north of Guam like that. But on the island, there are streets named for New York. There is Broadway and 72nd Street and Central Park in the village. And Harlem. Uh, Certainly, you could not have... No, you 125th could, Street. You could not have known that when you started this project, could you? I, I, that's, th- th- that's one of the pieces of data minutiae and, and trivia that, that, I, that I find... So charming when you discover them in history. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, you know, there there's so many stories, so many surprises, but then also just so many little tidbits of information that 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 come out. For, just to give you another one quickly, on July 16th, they're supposed to start the Potsdam Conference, as I mentioned, with Churchill and Stalin, but Stalin doesn't show up mysteriously. So Churchill has nothing to do that afternoon, and he doesn't know yet that the bomb is going to work. So he takes a trip into Berlin and it's the first time that he has seen it. And the devastation just, it, it, he's just shocked. I mean, he's, he's known, he's read, he's seen pictures, but now here he is on the streets of Berlin uh, that was going to be the capital of the third Reich. And it's, it's just devastated, just rubble from one part to another and long lines, not of men because all of them had been in the army and most of them were dead but of women and children and old people carrying all their belongings, pushing or pulling them like refugees. And 
And Truman sees this, and uh, he is so shocked by it. And he and 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 he writes in his diary. He's one of the things that's just such a joy. And you think to yourself, "Gosh, I can't wait to see." I don't know if I'll be around for it, but you know, the current president or Obama or you know is is to read their diaries because you get a different level of of intimacy, the inner conversation that was going on. And and Truman writes beautifully about what he was thinking. Let's move to stage four now in the country of Japan. And how did they decide on Hiroshima and not, say, Kyoto or Tokyo, Chris? Well, uh, Tokyo had already been bombed a lot, so that wasn't on the list. Kyoto was on the list, but uh, um, the, the Secretary of War... Henry Stimson, who was 77 years old, uh, had had a fondness for Kyoto and, you know, thought it was a great historical repository for Japanese culture. So he knocked it off the list. Mm. Hiroshima was kind of perfect. One, it hadn't been bombed at all. Now, that may seem odd, but they wanted to have the maximum military and psychological effect. So to pick a city that had escaped the bombing so far, two, there was a, a sizable military garrison there. It was a city of about uh, 250,000 with about 50,000 military, the second army garrison there. And third, it, it, the topography, it had sort of low hills around this bowl. And they literally thought that the way that the, the aerodynamics of the, of the explosion would work, that the, the topography of those hills would magnify the explosion and make it even more devastating. And, you know, the whole point here is try to bludgeon the Japanese to surrender, and they thought this was the right place. With regard to that, I believe the bomb explodes about a third of a mile above the Earth, above its target. I I know you're not a scientist, but I, I think through this book you understand why. Uh, yeah, it they, creates... they, they, they purposely decided that they were wanted to drop it 1,800 feet above the city rather than the impact of it hitting the city because they believed the devastation would be great. Yeah. Was there always a plan to hit Nagasaki next? No, no. I mean, the, the, here, was the, here was the thought. Truman was trying to make a calculus. Do I invade? And if I invade, what he would, the best information he was getting from his generals is, this is, this is one, another one of the fascinating details. They have a meeting in June, and General of the Army, George Marshall, they ask him, how many troops you need? And he says, I need 766,700. How he came up with that number? But they, the estimates were that there would be a half a million American casualties and there would be a million Japanese casualties. So when the decision is made to drop the bomb, the thought is, yes, it's going to be bloody. It's going to kill a lot of people, but it will actually save lives as compared to an invasion. They hope that by dropping it on one city, that would be enough and that would get the Japanese attention and force them to surrender. They dropped the bomb on August 6th. It is devastating. Uh, the country, well, most people in the country didn't know, but certainly the leaders in Japan did know. And there's absolute silence. They say and do nothing. The war continues. And so reluctantly, on August 9th, three days later, because, you know, they haven't gotten the message yet, mm. Truman uh, 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 orders them to drop another bomb on Nagasaki. And it is only after that second bomb and another scene of utter devastation that the Japanese, and frankly, it wasn't the military in Tokyo, it was the emperor, Hirohito, who overruled them. They were still very militant and wanted to continue the military. 
and he overrules them and makes a radio speech. And it is literally the first time that most Japanese citizens had ever heard the voice of their emperor. And he says, we need to surrender. And it was only then, after the second shock, that the war ends. Mm. So Truman knows there are civilians there. You mentioned Hiroshima, especially a military target, 50,000 Japanese military present. Um, But he also knows there's women and children there. And how how does he, what did you learn about how he works through that decision? Well, he, he came to the conclusion, if I invade, a lot of women and children are going to get killed. But if but if I invade, a lot of Americans are going to get killed. There's, there's no way, unless they surrender beforehand, that the Japanese are going to avoid a bloodbath. But perhaps I can stop an American bloodbath. And at one point, he writes in his diary, I think the flower of American youth is worth one or two Japanese cities. So it was a cold-hearted calculation. But, you know, as as uh, Paul Tibbetts, who was the command pilot in the Enola Gay, said, war is hell. There's yeah. no morality about it. And the thought was, Japanese are going to die anyway. I don't want to kill a, a, a couple of hundred thousand, three, four hundred thousand American troops. Right. So you're about three week difference between the testing in New Mexico, if I've got my math right, and Hiroshima. In right. Exactly time. 21 days. So did, did you find that when Truman was told in Potsdam that the test was a success, that he at that time made the decision to himself that he would use it? Not immediately. And that's one of the things that impressed me about Truman is how meticulous he was about it. He went over this decision over and over again, first in Washington, then in Potsdam with his military leaders seeking out uh, all the advice he could get. Uh, and and he, he agonized over the decision. For all the talk about Harry Truman as being famously decisive, the buck stops here, he never second-guessed himself. He agonized over this decision. He, he, as I say, reviewed it many times. He sought out people who might have a different opinion. He met shortly before he made the final decision with Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, and Ike told him, don't drop the bomb. I think the Japanese will surrender, and I don't think we should be the country to introduce this terrible new technology. Um, Truman had sleepless nights. He had fierce headaches. He wrote about it in his diary, a very apocalyptic terms, the fire destruction prophesied in the Bible. But ultimately, he decided while he was in Germany, let's go ahead and use it. Mm. You mentioned Colonel Paul Tibbetts. He was the pilot of the Enola Gay, named it after his mother, I believe. Is that right? That's right, Enola Gay. I've always been curious as to the other crew members and how they felt about their role and ultimately helping to end the war and also doing it at a great cost. I don't know. Did you learn much about the other airmen who were on board those planes? Absolutely. It was a 12-man crew. And first of all, and most of the crew didn't know what it was. They knew that this was a secret mission and that they were going to deliver something, hopefully, that would end the war, but they didn't know what it was. So most of the beforehand was jockeying to be on the flight. I mean, that's what you're doing for a living. You're a bombardier. You're a pilot. There was quite a rivalry between Tibbetts uh, and another top pilot named Robert Lewis as to who would be the commander of the flight. And Lewis was quite put out that he was in the second seat in the cockpit, not the lead pilot. Um very few of them knew what it was. A couple did. And they, he didn't formally announce it until they were underway, until they were off from Tinian on their mission to uh, Hiroshima. And he went over the intercom and said, we are going to drop 
the first atom bomb in history. And some members of the crew gasped and some members wrote later that uh, now it all made sense. Afterwards, none of them ever expressed any second thoughts about it, whether they had them privately, I don't know. But the Tibbets, for instance, said uh, war is hell. There's no morality to it. I was given an order and uh, I thought this would save American lives and I was proud to be part of it. Mm. So August 6th is Hiroshima, August 9th is Nagasaki, Japan surrenders on the 15th of August, correct? Hmm. I have to look at my book (laughs) and see exactly what day it is. It's several days later, and and the big Uh, issue— About a week or less than that, I believe, based on recall. Maybe even less than that, but but the big issue was the demand for unconditional surrender, because the Japanese— were very worried. I mean, at this point, they knew that they were wiped out. And and incidentally, they only had two bombs, but they were ready. And within several days, we're going to have more. So they and, and Truman was utterly prepared to keep it up and destroy another Japanese city until the Japanese surrendered. He wanted unconditional surrender. And mm-hmm. for the Japanese, that meant that we give up our emperor. And they thought that they would lose all of their cultural identity. And even when they came back, they with the final statement, they they continued to say they wanted a role for the emperor, and Truman decided to take yes for an answer. So he said, all right, you can keep the emperor, but he is going to report, he's going to uh, be report to and be subservient to the, uh, the, the chief occupying force in Japan, and that was led by Douglas MacArthur. So he, he was able to stay on the chrysanthemum throne but very much as a figurehead under the occupation of mm. the American. You're listening to Chris Wallace, host of Fox News Sunday, the author of a new book called Countdown 1945. And as I said at the outset, it's a doozy. <laughs> Our conversation continues in a moment. Back with Chris Wallace. Chris, congratulations on this. And the final few questions I have for you, bring it back to Washington. You said this is the biggest decision any president has had to make. Do you stand by that? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I would argue that it is. I mean, people could say some decisions that uh, Lincoln made in the Civil War, but but think about this. This was not just winning a war. This was unleashing an entirely new technology that, when you think of it, to ever since has kind of shaped the world, the atomic age. Uh, I mean, it, it, it started the Cold War in 1949. Russia explodes its first atomic weapon. Then we have thousands of missiles with nuclear warheads aimed at each other. Now we have countries around the world, uh, antagonists, uh, and obviously the fear that some terrorist organization might get a hold of a nuclear device. So it has kind of defined our geopolitical reality for the last 75 years, in addition to killing hundreds of thousands of people. It's a pretty big decision. Mm. You could argue maybe another one was bigger, but I'll, I'll stick with this one. Yeah. You mentioned a few moments ago Emperor Hirohito. I, I know this is about you, Chris, but there's another great book out there uh, by H.W. Brands. He's an author, professor, Austin, Texas, called The General versus the President. And he goes into how MacArthur helps rebuild Japan in the years before the Korean War starts and his battles with Truman and the I guess it's late 40s, early 1950s, but that's, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that'll be on the Wallace shelf sometime soon. Well, I I have not read that book, but I've read some H.W. Brand books. He wrote a great one about Reagan. 
you know, that, that's the fascinating thing when you get into this world. There's so many great stories to be told. And, you know, this, this way I'm doing it, the, yeah. the historical thriller where I'm taking you into the moment. And, you know, you've got to face what Truman faced. You've got to face what Oppenheimer at Los Alamos faced. You've got to face what Tibbetts faced as he's approaching uh, Hiroshima. Um, or you got to face what Hideko Tomura, a little 10-year-old girl who was uh, on the ground in Hiroshima when the bomb explodes and is still alive today and I got to meet. Um, you know, it's a very exciting yeah. new new chapter. I, I think I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a journalist and historian. I like it. Yeah, so do I. Uh, the whole story about how MacArthur helped rebuild Japan and develop a constitution really is fascinating, the, the contribution he gave. Last point. You told CBS News, I think it was a week ago, that you enjoyed this project because it had nothing to do with President Donald Trump. How yeah, do you want me to explain that? Yeah. yeah. I, just, do you want well, to get away you know, from it? Look, I, you, you do it. I do it. We live and breathe Donald Trump. Not saying whether you like him or don't like him, but it's exhausting. And, you know, he makes news. He creates controversies. People support him. People don't, uh, you know, attack him. And it's I, I love covering it. It's, you know, one of the great beats of all time covering this president. But it is kind of exhausting. And to be able in your spare time to put that completely out of your head and go back to 1945, such a simpler time. One last point I'd make. Yes. Uh, 125,000 people were involved in this project over several years, and it never leaked. They, there was such a sense of unity, such a sense of common purpose to help the U.S. win World War II that, that when people were told, keep quiet, they kept quiet. Can you imagine today if there were 125,000 people involved yeah. in anything that somebody wouldn't get on Facebook or tweet mm -hmm. and this is outrageous and this is and, you know, th that was a simpler time. It was a it was a, a more unified time uh, and it was pretty great to spend uh, a, a year uh, in 1945 America. They were facing their challenges, but it was a simpler world yeah. they lived in. I wonder if you could keep the deep state out of that, <laughs> Chris. Uh, the opening page says, To Lorraine, you are the best part of any adventure. That is your wife, Lorraine, and give her our best. I have seen both of you on many adventures over a lot of different assignments over the past 15 years or so here at Fox. And Chris, thank you for the wonderful conversation today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, you for reading it. Thank you for uh, sharing it with your listeners. You bet. It's called Countdown 1945, and my guest today, the author, Chris Wallace. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.